Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now last week, beloved, we uh, looked at the events of Luke chapter 19, verses 18 through 40. This event that we know well, this event we call the triumphal entry, it is what we celebrate every year on Palm Sunday when Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah, finally enters into the holy city of Jerusalem. The eternal Davidic king enters into the city of David. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, we know the story well. Uh, the crowds fall on their faces. They, they, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They worship him. It's the first time we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ a massive public declaration of Jesus' true identity. The crowds are finally proclaiming at the top of their lungs, Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, the long-promised Savior. And as I said last week, we usually look on Palm Sunday as an event filled with joy. Uh, one where Jesus finally receives the public recognition and worship that he truly deserves. But hopefully, if you were with us last week, hopefully you saw this, that the reality is the triumphal entry is actually quite a tragic event. It's tragic because, as we heard, those Jews who were supposedly worshiping Jesus were still clinging to their wrong conceptions about who the Messiah is. They were still expecting Jesus to enter into Jerusalem and save them. Now, Jesus would do that, but the salvation Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem was not the salvation that this crowd was looking for. These Jews were looking for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem and save them from the yoke of the Roman Empire. And so for all their shouts of praises, all their posturing of worship, these Jews, many of them, were worshiping a false Jesus, a Jesus of their own invention, rather than Jesus as he declared himself to be. They were worshiping a Jesus who would be a military leader, who would come to lead a rebellion, a coup, an uprising against Rome. They were worshiping a Jesus who they thought came to save Israel from national enemies. And if you had any doubt, beloved, that the triumphal entry is an event which is incredibly tragic, our text today should banish those doubts. Because here, our text opens with an astonishing statement. When he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept, beloved. This is one of only two examples in the New Testament where Jesus publicly weeps. 
The other, of course, is John 11.35 at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. But we should understand, although his weeping, in John 11, his weeping was certainly true weeping. It was true grief. We have to understand his weeping here in our text this morning is on a whole other level. The picture we are getting in our text this morning is of a weeping that is loud. It's deep lamentations. And his weeping is public. It's just as public as the cheering and the singing and the praises of the crowd around him. You see, Luke is giving us a contrast in our passage today. The contrast with the loud, exuberant praises of the crowd. Jesus, as the crowds all around him are praising and shouting of victory, Jesus is shouting out lamentation and he is weeping. The crowds are filled with joy because they believed their military conqueror was about to enter the city and liberate them. But the king of peace, the man of constant sorrow, rode upon his donkey, grievously lamenting. And we ask the question, why was Jesus weeping? Why was he lamenting? What is the cause of his public display of grief? Well, beloved, we should understand he was not weeping for himself. Although Jesus knew what lay ahead of him during his last week in his earthly ministry, although he knew that when he would enter the city, he would be betrayed by the same crowd, rejected by the same crowd who was praising him, beaten, put to death in the cruelest of fashions, although he knew that the pinnacle of his earthly sorrows and suffering and pain was ahead of him in the holy city, that his deepest grief was just days away, Jesus did not lament for himself. He lamented because of lost sinners, beloved. He lamented because the people of Jerusalem, a city whose name literally means the possession of peace, Jerusalem, had an astounding hardness of heart. And the people in that city did not know, as Jesus says in verse 42, they did not know the things that make for peace. So Jesus lamented. He wept bitterly. And it all goes back. It all goes back to the crowd's misconceptions of what the Messiah would do. The crowd sincerely thought that the things that make for peace would be military conquest, the liberation of the Jewish people from the Roman Empire, the reestablishing of Israel's golden age. But beloved, that is an earthly peace. That is a temporary peace. That's a national peace, but it's not true peace. Military triumph and liberation from Rome, it might have led to a lack of oppression, a lack of conflict for the nation of Israel, at least temporarily. But that is not the true biblical peace that Jesus was coming to bring. True biblical peace, what the Bible calls shalom, is not just a lack of conflict. That's how we think of peace, right? If we are praying for peace right now uh, for Ukraine and Russia, what are we praying for? We're praying for an end to the conflict, right? Biblical peace, shalom, is not just a lack of conflict. It is the presence of real harmony 
a harmony that cannot and will not be established through the conquest of one nation over another. Jesus was not coming to bring a national peace to Israel. He was coming to bring shalom, peace, and harmony. Harmony, peace between lost, dead, rebellious, wicked sinners and the God who is holy, holy, holy. A peace, a shalom that would only be accomplished through the once offering up of himself upon the altar of the cross where he would become the sin bearer for all his people. Jesus came to bring a peace, a shalom that is not temporary, but rather eternal. A peace which is achieved not through brute military force, but rather through the selfless, sacrificial love of the Lamb of God as he would go willingly to the altar of the cross and shed his own blood. This was the peace, this is the shalom that Jesus was bringing to Jerusalem, to the entire nation of Israel, and really to anyone and everyone, Jew or Gentile, who would come in repentance and receive him by faith. This was the peace, beloved, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem ultimately wanted nothing to do with. They were so consumed with their earthly trials and troubles, the condition of their earthly nation, that they were missing the true gospel of their salvation. They were missing a better peace. They were missing the very thing which could give them real, enduring, everlasting peace. They simply would not see it. They refused to see who Jesus was and what his work of bringing peace would, be, would, would, would all be about. They would not see it. They could not see it. And Jesus says in his lamentation that would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They had an intense spiritual blindness to the type of peace that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to bring. William Hendrickson said, instead of penitence, there was hardening. Instead of confession, there was apostasy. And as always, when sinners harden themselves, God in turn hardens them. God, in other words, gives them over to the hardness of their own hearts. This is the state of the city of Jerusalem in this moment as Jesus rides into the city. This is the cause of his lamentation. And to be sure, beloved, we want to understand something here. The hardness of Jerusalem is great. The rejection of Jesus is great. Jesus' lament is great. But even now, the door of grace, as one commentator called it, the door of grace is not entirely closed for Jerusalem. But we should understand it is rapidly closing for the city. Jesus, in his lamentation, continues on to show us just how rapidly the door of grace is closing for these unbelieving Jerusalemites. Jesus, in his lamentation, begins to speak, beloved. Once again, we've heard him do this many times. Begins to speak 
of coming judgment. Now, often throughout Luke's gospel, when Jesus will speak of coming judgment, he's speaking of final judgment, the day of his second coming. But here, he's speaking of a, what we might say a temporary judgment, an earthly judgment, a judgment that Israel has experienced before, a judgment from a pagan nation. Remember, Israel in their rebellion in the Old Testament suffered this kind of judgment. God used the Assyrians. God used the Babylonians. God used uh, the, the Persians to bring judgment upon God's people. Jesus here begins to proclaim a prophecy in similar fashion. Once again, Israel as a nation, the city of Jerusalem in particular, would experience a coming judgment where God is going to use a pagan nation. Jesus proclaims a prophecy in verse 43 about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, an event that would occur in 70 AD when Emperor Titus would siege the city completely and utterly, apart from three towers and the western wall, destroy the city. We should not miss this, beloved. Jesus' prophecy is amazing. It is so accurate. The fall of Jerusalem for the Jews was earth-shattering, or it would be an earth-shattering event. And we, honestly, we have never seen anything like it in our lifetime. Lord willing, we never will. But Christ's prophecy is so accurate. When, 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 when uh, Emperor Titus seizes Jerusalem, it happens almost exactly as Jesus says it would happen. You can to this day go and read the first century Jewish historian Josephus concerning the fall of the city. And you can read the things he wrote and say, wow, Jesus said that's exactly how it would happen. Josephus wrote Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temples to be razed to the ground, leaving only, only the towers, which projected higher than the others, to stand. And Josephus says that part of the wall which enclosed the city on the west, all the rest of the wall which encompassed the city, uh, the demolition teams leveled, so that one who would come there in the future would never believe that the spot had been inhabited. Historians will point out, and understand Jerusalem was not a huge city at that time, not compared to big cities today. They'll point out that over 600,000 people died of starvation alone. Rome's attack on the holy city. Over 1 million people died in the entire assault. And Rome was crucifying so many people in this attack that they were at one point scrambling to find more wood out of which to make crosses. And this prophecy, this too is a source of lamentation for Jesus. It's not just the hardness of hearts that he was seeing in Jerusalem. It's also the coming judgment which causes Jesus to lament. He's lamenting on the one hand for the people He's lamenting, on the other hand, for the coming judgment. And as he ascends the hill of the Lord into the holy city, imagine the contrast that's happening in the mind of Jesus in this moment. With his earthly eyes, what did he see? He saw the beauty, the radiance of the holy city, the gold of the temple and all its splendor. And yet in his mind, he could see prophetically the destruction that would happen in just 40 years from that day. 
And he knew. We know he knew it because he says it. He knew that destruction would occur because of Jerusalem's rejection of him and their rejection of the way of peace. The siege of Jerusalem was an act, as we said before, of divine judgment from God against that city. The siege of Jerusalem happened because, as Jesus says in verse 44, you did not know the time of your visitation. Now what, beloved, does that mean? What does the time of your visitation mean? There's a lot to that statement. There's a lot that that phrase can mean. But in this context, in this context, it certainly means the coming of the Messiah both into this world as he dwelt among us, but more specifically as he went into the holy city of Jerusalem. You see, the Jews had a unique privilege. They had a unique privilege in that day, beloved. The Messiah had come physically and visited them. The Jews up until this point, those who were following Jesus in his earthly life, they saw him heal the sick. They saw the lame walk. The blind recover their sight. They saw the dead raised to life. They even saw the demons submit to the, the authority of Jesus. And yet they continued to reject him. Some outright rejected him with outright disbelief that he was the Messiah. Others rejected him by making the Messiah into something that he was not. Either way, it's a rejection of the Messiah. And the Jews, the Jerusalemites, they did, not know, they did not know that in that time and in that place, God himself in the flesh was visiting them. And we should understand there's, there's even more to this than just God in the flesh coming into Jerusalem. There's more to this idea of the time of visitation than the triumphal entry. Jerusalem as a city, historically, was unique. It was unlike any city in the entire history of the world because it was a city in which God would often visit. It was in the city of Jerusalem where the temple was built. The temple which represented God's dwelling place amongst his people. It was in the city of Jerusalem where the altars were placed. The altars upon which animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices and blood, all these sacrifices were made and all these sacrifices were to point God's people to the atoning work of the coming Messiah. It was in the city of Jerusalem where the prophets were sent time and time again and quite frankly, it was in the city of Jerusalem where the prophets were murdered time and time again. Jerusalem as the holy city had a long history of being visited by God. In fact, we might say Jerusalem's entire history as a city is a history defined, defined by a time of visitation. And yet when the Messiah finally came, the greatest prophet of all, the word of God itself in the flesh, when he appeared, Jerusalem would once again murder the prophet of God. They did not know, beloved, the time of their visitation. And so judgment came upon the city. And when Jesus says they did not know, understand that's not a reference to an innocent ignorance. 
Leon Morris said that there is an ignorance that is innocent, but there is an ignorance that is culpable. He said these people had the revelation God had made known in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They had the ordinances, the sacrifices, the festivals, the priests, the prophets, and the law. They had the continuing evidence that God was active in the life and ministry of Jesus. They could see in Him that God had not forgotten His people. There was every reason for them to have welcomed Jesus as His disciples did, but they refused to accept all the evidence. They rejected God's Messiah. They would have to live with the consequences of their rejection. It is this that brought forth Jesus' tears. They would face complete and utter destruction. The city itself would face complete and utter destruction because they willingly, stubbornly, did not know the time of their visitation. And on that day of judgment that Jesus speaks of, the day that would come in 70 AD, I think it's safe to say, my friends, that on that day, the door of grace would finally completely be closed off to them. What I mean by that is not that no Jew would ever come to Christ again. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think the day is coming when many Jews will weep and look upon the one whom they pierced and repent and believe in Christ. And we look forward to that day. But what I mean by that is for those who would die in the siege of Jerusalem, the time of their repentance would come to an end. Upon their death, an accounting would be demanded of their souls. Upon their death, there would no longer be opportunity to soften their hearts, turn to Christ, repent of their sins, and receive Him by faith. Because they refused to let King Jesus conquer and rule over their hearts, in their earthly life, they would die by the hands of a great military conqueror. Just the very thing they were hoping Jesus would be. They would die by the hands of a military conqueror and face an eternity of torment. But it should be said, beloved, until that day of judgment came in 70 AD, as long as they were drawing breath, the door of grace was not completely closed off to them. They had time to recognize, in other words, the day of their visitation. We should understand this. You know, we heard last week how many of the people who were bowing down before Jesus and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Many of those people would, in just four days from that event, be shouting out, crucify him. And yet, even for those people, the door of grace was not entirely closed off to them yet. Pastor Joel Beakey put it this way. He said, friends, don't forget that there were those whose hands were red with blood, the blood of Jesus on the day of crucifixion, who were pricked in the heart on the day of Pentecost and cried out, what must we do to be saved? And God had mercy even on those Jerusalem sinners. The Jerusalemites, the Israelites, they may not have understood in that moment the day of their visitation. They may not have received Christ on that day. They may have even gone on to call for His murder, His crucifixion, but many would come to understand and repent and receive Jesus, and they would be saved even if they would later go on to die 
when Titus attacked Jerusalem. They would be saved. The door of grace was closing fast for them, but it was not yet closed. Understand, brothers and sisters and friends, the application for us is simple. Because the same is true for us today. We too are living in a day of visitation. With the door of grace rapidly closing, but not yet closed. Maybe you're hearing the sermon and you think, well, when, when is our day of visitation? When have we been visited by God? The answer is today is your day of visitation. Every time, brothers and sisters and friends, that you hear the gospel clearly proclaimed to you, every time you gather here with God's people and receive the ministry of the word or the ministry of the sacraments, that is the day of visitation. God is visiting us here. Did Jesus not say where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with them? Does not the Holy Spirit, through the administration of the sacraments, unite the bread and the cup to the risen King as He is right now in heaven? We are being visited, beloved, right now by Christ. But more than that, every time you read the Scriptures on your own, Every time, little children, every time that your fathers and mothers lead you in family worship, every time you pray, that is the day of your visitation. Do you understand that? Do you comprehend that truth? Participating in the ordinances that God has given to His covenant people, the church, is, to be, it is the same as being visited by the Messiah. And tragically... There are people, yes, even who have sat in these very pews, who despite having been visited by the Messiah for years upon years, still do not know the day of their visitation. People who have no desire to repent. People who have no desire to cling to the work of the Messiah Jesus Christ and cling to His work alone for their salvation. People who maybe have made Jesus into something they want Him to be instead of who He says He is. Beloved, I think we need to hear this message much more often than we hear it. I know it's not a popular message, but it's a dire message, a true message, one that Jesus Himself proclaims over and over and over again in His earthly ministry. The door of grace is closing. Judgment is coming. And when it comes, it'll be far worse than even the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And it will be judgment not from an earthly king, not from an earthly military leader. It will be judgment from the King of Kings, the one who leads the host, the army of heaven. But right now is the day of your visitation. Do you know that? Do you know that today is the day of visitation? Can you see what those Jerusalemites could not see on that day 2,000 years ago? Understand it and know it, beloved. Today is the day of visitation. And it does not matter if you've hardened your heart for decades upon decades. It does not matter 
If up until this point in your life you've cursed the name of Jesus Christ, salvation is still for you. Your hands might be covered with the blood of the crucified Christ. But if you repent and you turn to him in faith, the stain of your sin, amazingly, the stain of your sin will all be washed away by that very same blood, by the blood of the crucified Christ. You will be made clean. You will enter into your salvation. And understand this, beloved. Jesus Christ will no longer lament for you. Instead, He will rejoice over your soul. And so as we close today, let me say simply this. Know the day of your visitation. Receive the Messiah as your Lord, as your Savior. Allow Him to conquer the territory of your heart. Surrender your soul to Him. And He will set you free from the tyranny of sin, of Satan, and of death itself. Do that. And you can know that Jesus has now made peace, true shalom between you and the holy triune God for all eternity.